It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Dark victory is over. What we have can't be destroyed. That's our victory. Our victory over the dark. I saw it coming. And just now, a little while ago, I asked her to her face, do you love him? And she answered, yes, I do. What are you going to do? Are you going to go up there this weekend and hold her in your arms? Are you? I'm not in your care any longer. You'll always be in my care. Will I? I know how you feel. Anything to strike back at me. But don't do it this way. What do you want me to do? Stay alone in my room and think how in a few months... Judith, you hate me, don't you? Oh, I hate you so much and for so many reasons. I hate you for not telling me the truth. I hate you for letting me hurt myself with your head. I'm so ashamed. I guess I was born out of my time, Miss Judith. I should have lived in the days when it counted to be a man the way I like to ride and the way I like to fight. What good's riding and fighting these days? What do they get you? You're making love to me, aren't you? I'm as good as some of them that's been playing around with you. They're all afraid of you. I wish I was in their boots. 
What then, Michael? The things I've wanted to say to you ever since I first laid eyes on you belong to me and no one else. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Dark Victory. This is the beginning of our 13th season, Andy. Dark Victory. Oh, my gosh. Tell the people briefly, will you please, why we are doing Dark Victory. As our new season kicks off, this entire season is going to be series that are looking at various awards categories over the um, over the years. And so as a, a year that we have covered a number of times on various series 1939 has long been talked about as a year of uh, kind of like where hollywood releases were kind of at their peak there's a lot of really interesting films in 1939 that represent a variety of types of films we've talked about six of the films that had been nominated for best picture we figured hey what a what a better way to start this season than with a series looking at the 1940 academy awards nominees for best picture Rounding out the the Best Picture nominees, we have these last four films to discuss, starting with Dark Victory. And so, uh, yeah, we've already talked about Gone with the Wind, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Nanachka, Stagecoach, and The Wizard of Oz. So, yeah, we're kicking this one off uh, to close this out so we can have a conversation about this set of films and what we think of them. Can't wait. Uh, and most of those other movies are really good. There's some good stuff in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. This is a, it's a good year. I don't know if you've heard. 39 was a good year in movies. You might have heard good that. Good year in movies. Yeah, just a few people have said that. Here we are talking about uh, Betty Davis and Dark Victory. And uh, I had never seen this. Had you seen this? Is this new to you? I had never seen this before. Uh, yeah, this. In fact, these four films that we're looking at, I have um, I've never seen any of these films. So this will um, be a series of new um, new watches for me. Okay. Excellent. Well, then this is new to both of us, the story of Betty Davis, who is a, a fantastic, uh, lovely socialite. And she also rides horses and owns horses and sells them and buys them and does horse things. 
horse things. Very much one of the, um, as as they would kind of uh, look at a lot of these people in this particular period of time, very much kind of that Long Island socialite sort of person yes. is what we have here. She clearly isn't somebody who has to worry about money. She's kind of an heiress. I don't know what her family does, but she really doesn't worry about money at all. She's 23. She has all these horses and uh, fast cars. Lives the high life, basically, is what we see with Judy Traherne. And she's palling around with the likes of Ronnie Reagan and Humphrey Bogart. What's up with that? (laughs) Yeah, interesting cast here. Uh, I mean, Betty Davis, this is something else that is nice to kind of talk about with this particular film. But we have done an entire series of just Betty Davis films, looking at a number of her films. And now we're returning to her as a performer. And I think uh, looking at her uh, list of films, I think this is this now the earliest film we've talked about of hers. I was thinking about that. I, I didn't look at the list, but I'm telling you, it has to have been the earliest film. She looks so young. Yeah, she looks like a little baby in this. Yeah, no, she started in 31. Yeah, and there's a long line of films that she has made. We have talked about in our Betty Davis series... Little Foxes. I, I think Little Foxes might be the earliest that we've looked at with hers. Uh, little Foxes, now Voyager, and then we looked at uh, All About Eve. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I love watching her, and in these early years, I just, you know, she hasn't quite, um, well, I say she hasn't quite uh, turned into the caricature of what Betty Davis' performance has become. That being said, I mean, this is, I don't know, in her 20 or 30th something films that she has made in her career, like, she's already been ridiculously busy from the time she started, so... I suppose you could say there already is very much kind of a Betty Davis stamp that you end up getting in her performances with with the films. I mean, what do you think of her in this role? Well, I really like her. And I think if I if I have the, the melodrama of this this movie and I think, you know, fair to say melodrama, it's based on the the original 34 play by George Emerson Brewer and uh, Junior and Bertram Block. I have never seen uh, or read the play that this was based on. Um, it is, it feels sped up. The whole thing feels really, really sped up. And part of that is dramatic license. Part of that is um, just that, well, I guess all of it is dramatic license. Everything happens very quickly because she's given this terminal disease with eight or nine months to live. Um, and that that artificiality, I felt like I had to step over in order to really get into the movie. But she does an able job of helping me do that. She's delightful on screen. She's charismatic, fun, uh, kind of flirty, but still super, uh, you know, uh, aggressive in the way she manages business in this this period where, uh, you know, it. And yet it still feels like all of the men around her are still sort of doting on her and in ways that feel kind of, you know, funky to these modern eyes. I I found her just delightful to watch all the way to the very last frame. I thought she was great. Well, and as somebody who really is like in every scene carrying the entire film, the entire weight of it really is on her shoulders to deliver um, a solid performance. I I definitely think that there are those moments where uh, she's really playing into exactly kind of the socialite type of character 
that she does really well. Like she plays this type of socialite, like, you know, quick talking, brash decisions. She's got those intense eyes that she looks at people with. And uh, I, I think that is somebody who plays that up really well. The kind of the, I, you know, the headstrong woman. And I think that's very much who she is anyway. I mean, there's uh, a reason that the Warner, that people called her kind of the fourth Warner brother, because she had been so headstrong with working, making these decisions at Warner brothers when she was uh, contracted there that she, you know, was seen as this person who just, who made all those decisions very quickly and, as if she were telling the Warner Brothers themselves what to do. In this film, I mean, I think there's this tricky line. I mean, she had seen the my my the reading of this is like this play had been around for a few years. People have been trying to get it made and stuff. Um, but um you know, I I think that they hadn't quite found the right performers to do it. By the time that Betty Davis discovered the play, and this is, you know, four years after it had already been floating around, she's the one who um, really pushed them to do it. And because I think that she saw in the film an opportunity for her to likely get a lot of notice. It gave her meat to chew on as a performance. And again, and this is something we'll probably be talking about a lot over the course of this series and, and and this entire season, but there is this sense of kind of awards bait with this type of performance. Like it's something that she really can sink her teeth into that likely will also lead to a nomination for a performance for her, which as somebody who'd already had a couple Oscars, I mean, I think there's probably some of that when she's trying to find a role like this, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is, 1939 Oscar bait, for sure. It, it, you know, if not something that defines the term. What do you think of the relationship between her and Dr. Steele? That was the one I actually texted you in the middle of this. Like, medicine sure has changed a lot. Because that's that's the one where I think if you were coming at this movie completely cynically, that's where you're going to start poking holes. When I watch these older films, I've been watching a number of older films that deal with the medical community. I mean, I just recently watched the story of Louis Pasteur and very much the same sort of thing. Like looking, And that's people from the 30s looking at people from when Louis Pasteur was doing his experiments. Like they're in that period mocking the people just ahead of them or just behind, you know that you know not too far in the past and it's it's very similar and so it's interesting to kind of see a scope of what they how they handled things but uh, but at the same time it's like there was some stuff that I was like okay well I mean they actually knew it was glioma they actually talk they call it out in the film yeah and so they had already been kind of figuring some stuff out and so that I I kind of found interesting that I'm like oh okay so they're actually trying to play it as realistic as they could for its time and so I didn't end up really having too many issues with with it because it I think that they were trying at the time of production, trying to play it as realistically as they could. And so for me, I just felt like, you know, it fit with what I was expecting for 1939 medical treatments. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I when, when you talk about the way the movie handles time, there is some extended time where we're dealing with the the building of the romance by way of the medical relationship, right? She did not want to go to the doctor. She was very, very stubborn. And by the time they got her, they sort of tricked her into the doctor. He ends up, he didn't want to see her because 
he was on his way to Vermont to open his uh, tough shed brain cell research lab in his backyard. (laughs) (laughs) And and so he was closing down his office and wasn't taking any more patients. But somehow we have a medical mystery meet cute, the MMMC. Uh, and he is able to determine very, very quickly that there's something wrong with her. There are a couple of fantastic sequences in that initial or, or fantastic beats in that initial scene that I, I want to call out. When he was giving her objects to to describe with her eyes closed and was able to determine what they were in her you know, left hand, but not her right. I thought that was fantastic. I don't know if that's something that that happens, but it sure does feel like like Dr. House, you know, working through the medical mystery. And I thought that was uh, that was amazing and filled me with, I think, the right level of grief that, oh, no, I don't even necessarily need to know how this works. The fact that she is not able to determine that that's a pencil in her hand uh, is horrifying. It's horrifying. It chills up my spine just talking about it. Did you have any of those moments yourself? Was did any of those kick out to you? I mean, you know, that definitely, I think, was a strong moment in the uh, in the scope of him studying her, trying to figure out exactly what it was. The way that that was written, the way it played out, her performance, the way that she was trying to at the end. And she's like uh, almost as if she she didn't quite catch on, but she thought she was catching on. And so she was like, oh, you silly. You're just trying to trick me here. Um, even though we had been watching the entire time and realized that she was getting this wrong, um, you know, every time something was in her right hand, it was it was an interesting scene to play out and kind of a heartbreaking thing. And that's, I think, where these things work so well is the way that a character like uh, Judy here, uh, how she really reacts to all of this stuff as I mean, we've already talked about kind of this sense of Betty Davis as this or playing this character as this very intense woman who is just wants to play doesn't want to listen she knows something's wrong she has that she has that spill early on but even before that we see her kind of leaning against a tree and she's kind of like got this headache and you know i think she tells her friend uh ann that it's like she calls them her little hangovers and she goes from that to saying i'm going to ride this horse and then we get that really interesting moment where the screen kind of splits and uh it, we kind of step into her perspective for a brief moment and get a sense of what it's like with her vision kind of breaking down the way it is and suddenly she can't tell where this next jump is for the horse and she ends up running through a fence instead of the jump like that was another moment for me. Yes. That, you know, I, I think those are the things that we're starting to see where we get those perspectives. And it only happens, I think, maybe twice, like here and then kind of at the end. You could argue that the last shot, it's definitely we're looking at her. So it's not a POV, but the it's almost like the camera perspective kind of takes on her persona as everything kind of goes blurry. And I thought that was a very powerful way to end the film. Well, because when she dies, we all die, Andy. A little bit. Inside. <laughs> yes. That's the camera. That's what the camera tells us. There. So the the next sequence of, in question that I have for you is the is the sequence after they have done all the work and the, there's the panel of doctors in her house because that was cool. Like everybody, you mean all the doctors would just come to her house? I'd like that. Uh, they a couple of the old guys leave and we're left with Doctor Steele and the family practice doctor that referred her there, and they now know that she is is terminal and they have a conversation about not telling her 
that she's terminal. They withhold the diagnosis. Yeah, because as we learn, the surgery that she goes through prevents it prevents kind of her from dying in that 10 month window that they had initially given her. But it really only extends it a couple more months because they realize that she will have remission. And that is another piece that just feels like through day to eyes. I was shocked at at the portrayal of this decision and doubly shocked in researching that this is still a question today, even though all of the health authorities, the medical authorities have come down saying, you know, ethically, this is classified as obligation to inform. As a medical practitioner, you have to tell the patient it's the patient's information and no one else's above and all uh, above all else. And having a discussion like these doctors did in 1939, uh, while it may have happened, has has we assume that's been done away with. But there are still actively you know, uh, researchers actively dealing with the ethical challenges of this as now families are coming forward telling, please don't tell my family member of their terminal diagnosis. Like, how do you get around these issues? I think it's really interesting that this movie is also playing in that area. Here, it's played with not so much as a as an ethical boundary for her. That That, I think, is a little bit hand-wavy. They kind of move on pretty quickly, but it's more of a tool for the the romance that she ends up being with him and I think we're supposed to get that that's some sort of a salve to her level of comfort, that she might have put, been able to put it in the back of her head that she's going to die because she's with this guy who saved her life. Well, first, yeah, the, the issue of kind of the ethical decision to not tell her and leave this something that really is between the doctors and then eventually Anne, her friend, who kind of uh, gets it out of the doctor— it it was one of those things that I I mean I was I was looking around trying to figure out like is this a is this story something that may have led to some of these um, legal changes in the medical community I couldn't find anything but I was curious about that and as you said you what was it called the the right to obligation obligation to inform the obligation to inform like I was was this something that really led to that to be something that was kind of in place. Uh, I, I couldn't find it, but I do find it interesting when films like this, stories like this, do lead to those sorts of things. You know, we talked about that a lot when we talked about Kramer versus Kramer and how that led to some decisions about divorce and how um, there were uh, changes made in the legal community because of it. This is one of those moments. Like, I, well, I don't know, but I, I felt like there must be something here because. <laughs> It seems so wrongheaded right. for him to end up confiding in her friend, but not telling her for the sake of let's let her be happy. But it, and it does lead to that moment where she confronts them once she accidentally finds the file and she sees that whole prognosis negative note and all those letters that he had had with a bunch of other doctors trying to kind of explore this case and see if there were other ways to get past it. And she realized that her prognosis was negative, and she confronts them in the restaurant. And uh, really kind of that to me was that moment that <laughs> if there's ever a moment in a film like this to lead to that obligation to inform, like that That's was it. that moment. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I, I had the exact same feeling. And so 
you know, then you try to separate the fact that I'm shocked at the practice of medicine in this movie and transition to what did that allow us to develop in the relationships between the three of them? It actually is quite lovely, right? I I love as the movie transitions to, you know, into the third act and they are in Vermont and Anne comes to visit and uh, Humphrey Bogart's there with the horses and everybody's kind of tooling around. She's in the garden. Uh, I think the relationship with Anne that develops as a friendship is really is is quite sweet. And, um, you know, Anne's portrayal as a caregiver, even though this is Betty Davis's movie, I can absolutely see the caregiver alternative angle to this movie. It was it was just lovely. And, you know, that all leads to this final moment where I and, and I you, you might have to correct me. What he had told what he had laid plain earlier in the movie was she's going to be fine right up until she isn't. And what that will look like is she'll start losing her sight. And then how long will she have after that? Does he say hours? My memory is he says hours. Yeah, it it seemed very short, whatever it was. But I, I can't remember if it was specifically hours or something, but it was it was not a lot of time, basically. Not a lot of time. And that's exactly what we get in the last, I don't know, 10 minutes of this movie. It feels like she starts having trouble seeing because in this I had forgotten about the the blindness being an indicator of her failing brain. I had forgotten it. And so when she holds out her hands and says, oh, we've got to go in, the storm is coming, the clouds are coming, I thought there was a storm. Like, I was right with the, the movie. I thought it was a great turn and a lovely little surprise that she actually was losing her sight right then. And she clears out the house to die alone. Yeah, it was an interesting decision that kind of led to that. And, you know, just, I mean, structurally, just real quick, just to kind of set this up, how fascinating to me this story was. We're diagnosing this disease within the first five, ten minutes of the movie. Like, it is, the movie is a disease story. It's not like a story of her trying to figure out her life and then the big turn at the end of the first act, suddenly she has this disease. Like, this is a film of disease. She pretty much has it the entire film. She's, even before the film starts, she's already been having these headaches for months. So it's something that has been going on. That point where she realizes that, uh, well, she goes through the, the surgery reluctantly, but inevitably, happily. She goes through the surgery and has come out the other side She's praising the doctor for giving her her life back, and she's celebrating life all before the first half of the movie, the the midpoint hits. Yeah. Once we get to the midpoint, that's when she discovers that they had been lying to her and that her prognosis is negative. And then the whole last half of the film is her coming to terms with that. And so the structure of this was just not what I was expecting. And it made for, for me, a more interesting story because what we have at that midpoint is her essentially, she's pissed off at Anne and Dr. Steele for having lied to her and keeping this from her. And she basically goes down the dark road of basically throwing caution to the wind and she's drinking all the time and she's just, she's a mess of a person. Drinking so much. Which eventually she finds her way through and this was you know uh, you know we last season we talked about uh the end of last season we talked about the mission impossible franchise and mission impossible 3 starts with that moment of uh philip seymour hoffman's character davian getting ready to kill julia ethan hunt's wife and you see tom cruise go through those stages of of grief, right? As he's kind of walking through the denial and the anger and the pleading and all those different things. Over the course of this film, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're watching 
Judith go through all of these different things. And she has this denial very much at that midpoint. She's really angry taking it all out. But she comes around and finally, that's that point where she realizes that there's more to life and she needs to live. And I can't remember which character it was that said to her something that kind of triggered that. But that whole idea that she finally makes that switch and realizing that uh, oh, it's it's Michael. She's talking to Michael, right? The uh, Humphrey Bogart's stable hand, right? She's talking to him, and that's the thing that gives her the thing that she should be happy. Yeah, because she's this is in the, by the fire. He brings her into the stable, and she's sitting down with him in front of the wood stove. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And scene. and so she finally realizes I'm making a big mistake. I don't want to die angry. I want to die happy. And that's when she kind of goes into acceptance, and she apologizes to Steele. And agrees to marry him and and go to Vermont and everything. And so and so we really do kind of get to explore this whole journey with her of coming to terms with making it through the disease, thinking she's cured, falling into the depression and the anger, only to find her way through it again and want to enjoy life until that final moment, which, as you said, just kind of comes out of nowhere as they'd kind of warned. And it really things shift very quickly leading to that final moment. It's it's really kind of a powerful journey watching watching her go through it. It is. It's like a perfect roller coaster, right? All the emotional ups and downs are timed really, really well. The, and finally, at the end, you know, she's I, I, I think. Well, let me take a step back when I we my cats were dying. I had two cats, these black cats. They were adorable. And they were just old and they were dying. And one of the things they wanted to do, whenever we would kind of let them outside, they would creep along and try to find their way under a bush and curl up in a circle. And I was talking to my mom about that, who has studied some animal behavior. And she says, oh, that's what they do. These these like animals often have this instinct to go die alone. I couldn't help but think of Betty Davis. Like, she's kind of like a dying old cat, and she wants to curl up in the dark alone. Like, what is it? Her last line is something like, is that you, Margie, Martha, May, Marlene? Whatever, it's an M. <laughs> it's, a Mar- it's Martha. <laughs> it is Martha. Uh, is that you, Martha? I don't want to be disturbed. And she puts the blanket over her and walks out, leaving the room dark, and she's alone in, in, in bed dying. That feels to me like an exercise of of like deep instinct that I thought was fascinating being played out here in the the embodiment of this superficial socialite right this person who lives as the idle rich and and yet her death is an expression of deep ancient kind of human instinct I thought that was really kind of a lovely sandwich well, especially because, like, she and uh, and Dr. Steele had created this interesting life together where they very much don't talk about the disease. They pretty much pretend it doesn't exist. Like, that's how they stay happy. They know it's there. It's just not something they're going to let bother them. On one hand, you look at that and go, well, they're kind of being idiots because, of course, you have to acknowledge that it's there. But on the other hand, you can see how powerful it is to get to that place when you're in a relationship with somebody who one of the party is is dying, to get to that place where you can just ignore it and just go on enjoying your love together and not let that weigh you down. Like, it was actually a fairly interesting development in the way that they had their relationship. And I think that really plays into that whole ending because we have, you know, Dr. Steele is getting ready. Like he's been invited to go. I can't remember. He's going to go present somewhere. Everything that he's been studying about 
the brain. And this is a huge opportunity for him. Of course, it happens at the exact same time that she suddenly is going down and she's losing her vision and everything is going, um, you know, gray and out of focus. But she won't let that stop him from this success. And so that whole ending is really devastating because she acknowledges what they've already created in their relationship and she doesn't let it weigh things down even in that point and she goes through this whole process of pretending she's totally fine and that whole last speech that she has which is really i suppose her saying you know this is that victory that we have but it's very it's such an interesting last speech because for her it means something in this point that's kind of totally different than what it means for him like you know she's it's her own victory over the fact that she's able to give him this. And for him, it's just this success of, of having made it through all of this as much as they had. And it leads to that powerful final moment as he leaves and, Anne knows what's happening, but also has to per Judy, like keep it quiet. It's, I mean, it's kind of devastating and it's just, but it's, it's so interesting to see this character who is kind of so um, spoiled socialite sort of character come to this place at the end where she's giving this to uh to those characters as as we come to the end of the film i i think it's an interesting interpretation that you're calling this out as an act of generosity on her part is that a fair characterization i think that's what she's based on the relationship yeah i'm talking specifically about her relationship with dr Steele. the relationship that they had or the 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 way that they had kind of created their story about this disease was we're not going to talk about it and we're just going to enjoy ourselves it's there but we're not going to let it weigh it down and so i think in that last moment is it is there is that moment of generosity of giving him this opportunity otherwise we know he wouldn't have gone he would have missed this opportunity he would have been by her side etc and and that's the other side of it which i think is also an act of generosity and that's the part that i struggle with a little bit because it feels like an act of selfishness on on the other hand of hers to do this alone and not let him take part in her passing, given all that he has put into their relationship and in her care over the year. And that's the part that I feel like uh, it just kicks me in the stomach because, you know, if you play it out, he's going to come back and she will be dead and he'll have to deal with it, even though he knows it's coming, he's her a medical practitioner, he knows what the prognosis is, he's going to still have to deal with the very human realization that this person he loves is dead. And that is a surprise. Not that it's going to happen, but when it's happen, happening and that he didn't get to be a part of it, I think, is is a, an act of, of selfishness in on the other side of the very same coin. So... You know, part of the of what I think is the intriguing question that the that the movie, you know, offers for me personally is who gets the right to decide how they want to die? Right. Like, yeah, it really Betty Davis is making the case here that it's her. Right. Or Judy is making the case. It's her. The one who's dying gets to decide how they want to die. Everything after that is left to the living. And so I think that's a, a a really interesting thing, knowing even knowing what kind of grief you live with when you discover somebody that is very, very close to you has passed and you weren't aware. It's it's excruciating. And yet I kind of like the message at the end of this movie. 
Yeah, and and your point is incredibly valid. Like, who really has the right? Is is her decision to do this selfish? To a certain extent, their decision to kind of disregard the disease and just live <laughs> normally is kind of selfish anyway, because yeah. it's there, but they're just kind of pushing it off like nothing's happened. And all these people around them are like, you know, walking on eggshells because they're like, should I say anything? Should I just kind of go along with it? And I imagine it creates a very tricky situation for people. So it is hard. But yeah, it's one of those things that I think you do kind of have to acknowledge, like there is something to the person who is dying, who gets kind of the, if there's somebody who gets the most say-so in a situation like this, it's that person. Yeah. Well, and on the other side of that very same discussion we were having earlier about obligation to inform is that it is the patient that has the right to decide uh, their their course of care based on unbiased presentation of all the facts, the medical facts by the doctor. Right. That's the relationship. Yeah, right. And so it, in part of this movie, you may be able to look into this movie and say, like, she, he was so he so defiled that relationship early in the movie. There was no other course but for her to take it into her own hands at the end. Yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way. I just don't know. Based on the characters, I don't think that it really kind of comes across that way in context of the story presented. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't not that it's necessarily vindictive, but you can kind of sense, at least I can kind of sense that, you know, she's part of what she is is doing alone and why she doesn't want him to have a part of it is because, you know, maybe there's fear that he would try to take care of her again. You know, she just is taking the reins. I like that. I mean, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, regardless, I, I find it to be clearly a powerful story that it gives Betty Davis a lot to work with. And again, it gives these people that she's playing opposite a lot to kind of work with, too. Like yeah. when she's these big performances. I mean, Dr. Steele comes in fairly early, George Brent. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, conversation to be had about uh, George Brent and Betty Davis as far as the them and on screen and off screen. But um, very interesting um, kind of performance that he gives as this surgeon who, again, this is something that I think does date it a little bit, but the, you know, the surgeon who also falls in love with his own patient. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a whole side to that, that I suppose uh, ethics uh, people, you know, the committees would view as um, a problem. Um, yeah. Not so much in 1939. <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. Um, it, but, you know, obligation to inform that we're in love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, there's an interesting relationship there. But really, the, the relationship that I enjoyed the most in the film was between uh, Judy and Anne, her friend slash, I think she was, she said she was her secretary. It seemed to be her best friend. Anne was there throughout and was, uh, you know, I think a strong performance. Geraldine Fitzgerald plays the part. This was her first film over in Hollywood. She was uh, an Irish actress. And, uh, you know, certainly somebody ha that has had a long and robust career. I think that, uh, you know, she was in Rachel. Rachel, we talked about her in that particular film. But um, lots of films that, uh, um, you know, she's done great. And actually, we'll be talking about her very soon in this very series because she also stars in Wuthering Heights. Yes. Excited for that. What did you think about uh, kind of the, the role of Anne and and how uh, Fitzgerald, what she brought to the part? 
Well, I, I like her so much. And I, I feel like, you know, she doesn't get a lot, but what she does get, like that relationship we see early on and at the track or with the horses and, and all of the way she talks to Betty Davis, the way they interact, I think is really satisfying because it's very, very human, right? It, it's not an employee-employer. It, it's a human thing. Now, their relationship starts in the beginning with them sleeping in the same house. So you already get a sense that they are, um, that they're, relationship is is more intimate than a normal uh relationship between a secretary and um you know and their employer she is she has the phones by her bed she answers the phones and and is just a a couple of doors down (laughs) to to betty davis's massive bedroom which i thought was was a really lovely way to enter their their idol rich world so yeah i'm i'm a big fan and i think we get to the end, their relationship becomes even more intimate as Anne is kind of with her as she realizes that she's making this this transition to blindness and death. And in fact, I mean, you could it, just as I'm saying it, I'm realizing that the person who was essentially at her bedside, even though not literally at her bedside, her first death was her awareness of death's imminence. And Anne was with her for that. And that's pretty touching to me. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, you you brought up the um, relationship of the phones and stuff, and that really <laughs> triggered the whole start of this film. Was uh, Humphrey Bogart playing the again the the their horseman, the stable boy, or not really stable boy? I guess he's just the trainer, the stable um, middle aged man. <laughs> yeah, right. He's uh, a terrible Irish accent. Honestly, it was a weird part for Humphrey yeah. Bogart. I really didn't think he worked. In no. the movie at all, they could have done with somebody completely uh, a little less of a of, of a presence. But anyway, the film starts with him coming into the house and and uh, making these calls and stuff. And and Anne comes in irritated with him because they had just had this big party the night before. Everybody went to bed at four a.m. It's now six a.m. and he's trying to wake everybody up and stuff like that. And it was like that instantly set us set us up for these characters, this world where they've got all these multiple lines in this house to kind of like have all these calls and stuff. It was an interesting way to set this story up and give us a sense of the party lifestyle that Judy lived and this really rich lifestyle and the work, like the employees and the relationship she has with these employees. I mean, the whole opening is like all about how uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, Michael O'Leary, how he's just taking it too far and she's surely going to fire him shortly after this. And it's like such an interesting start to this film that uh, sets up just really the the work relationships and everything that she has um, while not necessarily setting, doing anything with the disease at all, but definitely gives us a sense of her world. What is the, what is ultimately the purpose of, of like, I, I don't know. The the horse stuff just felt like an appendix to me. Like I get that she is um that that we need to see some sort of evidence of her idle richness. And this is a pastime and an expertise. Like she gets on the horses and rides them. And we sort of need that because we get the moment where she steers the horse uh, away from the jump and into the into the bracing. But there there is part of it that I felt like, man, they probably could have just written the entire horse line out and made her collect cars or something like they didn't humphrey bogart was just not only was it not a great part for him it wasn't a completely solid role in the movie you know like i just i i I was always surprised when it came back around because i'd forgotten that he was here 
Well, and I, yeah, I, again, I think that just is more of a fault of casting Bogey than yeah. than the story uh, with the horses. That's kind of a B story for sure. If anything, a C story um, for sure. If C story, yeah, it's a story thread that's in here that I think gives us a couple things. One, as you said, it gives her an expertise. It gives us a chance to have that moment where we see her disease in action as she's doing something active. Right. It also gives us a sense of her position in the world. She's not just somebody who rides horses, but she owns horses and has this person taking care of her horses. And not only just taking care of horses and stuff, but like breeding like racing horses, like, you know, well-to-do horses. And I guess also it really would have built to the finale of the film that was actually cut. It was a an ending of the film after she dies. We actually see this horse. And this is the other thing. Her horse is named Challenger. And I think that that was just a fitting name for this horse that she had so much confidence in that, of course, Michael had no confidence in. But her horse wins a race and we see Michael crying. And that was kind of the original ending of this film audiences uh in a sneak preview uh hated it and so they cut that ending but there would have been a continuation of that through line right through to the very end of the film when we actually see challenger was the right horse from the beginning what do you think i mean i think it finishes the story and and i think for somebody like you that had an issue with that story thread to begin with that would have been the tie that would have at least made it complete i think you're right yeah as it as it stands I can see why they would have cut it. It sounds a little, uh, little saccharine. maybe uh, a little saccharine. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if if there would have been a way around that. Maybe not necessarily at the very end. They could have found a way to do something, but I didn't miss it. I didn't have as much an issue with the story thread as you did. But I can see your point. Well, you know, it's a it's definitely a Casablanca thing. Like if I gave it any thought, I probably would hate it. But I don't really give it much thought. And Bogey was he was fun to see in here when he popped up as sort of an also ran of a part that he was in here. I, the same kind of goes for uh, Ronald Reagan. I mean, we, you know, got to drop Ronald Reagan in here somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think he uh, it's you know, I think if anything, that some of these bit players represent certain parts of his of of judy's life where you know michael o'leary is the horse side of his life um alec ham played by ronald reagan is the party side of her life there's really nothing to him as a character other than having him in here every time she's kind of in that world and just giving us a sense of judy the party lady and that's 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 what we get on ronald reagan really not much to the character but he's just there when needed yeah and and again, delightful to see young Ronald Reagan. Like, I, I like seeing him when I see him on screen. And uh, same goes for Bogey. I just I feel good when I see them. Um, and it was it was nice to see the way he interacts with, you know, with these these other parts of her lives. You see the Venn diagram sort of close uh, as so much of her society takes place at her house. Like we do get her in the car going off to the stables. That seems to be some distance away. But everything else comes to her. And uh, that's that's it, it's kind of neat to watch how those how all of the circles kind of overlay one another. It's it's solid. Yeah, absolutely. A few more notes about the production of this, which I, I think were interesting. This was actually the eighth of 11 films that Betty Davis was in with George Brent. And uh, like looking at the lineup, I'm like, wow. Uh, I mean, it started in 1932 with so big. 
and then the rich are always with us, housewife, front page woman, special agent, and then uh, the golden arrow, Jezebel, this, the old maid, which actually came out the same year as this, also directed by Edmund Goulding, which we haven't really talked about at all. The Great Lie, In This Our Life, and uh, the movie, and then the, then a TV movie, the movie Crazy Years, which I think was more kind of a documentary. So, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of work that these two did together. And it's interesting because this was at this time where Betty Davis was divorcing her husband, Ham Nelson. He had filed for divorce because... He had put a wiretap in their bedroom and caught her <laughs> having an affair with Howard Hughes. And so so he's yeah, okay, I'm going to file for divorce. She'd also been having an affair with William Wyler. And so uh, she was going through this process of this divorce while at the very beginning of production. And she said she wanted out of it because she was so distraught from the divorce and everything. And she told the producer, Hal Wallace, I want out of this. I'm too sick to continue. And he said, well, I've seen the rushes. Stay sick. And so she had to keep shooting. And she ended up, uh, that this is where she kind of hooked up with George Brent. And she ended up having a loose relationship, never quite getting married, but it did last about a year over the course of the two of them making, I think they did like three films together over the course of this one year. Like they were together quite a bit and uh, they never got married actually. But Betty Davis did say later in life that um, she wanted to marry him, thought it wouldn't work. Um, but quote of the men I didn't marry, the dearest was George Brent. <laughs> yeah, she did Dark Victory in 39. Also in 39, she did The Old Maid with George Brent. And then in 41, The Great Lie, all directed by Goulding. Yeah, I mean, uh, Goulding, I mean, we haven't, have we talked about anything of his? I kind of don't think we have. He, I mean, before this, his biggest film was probably uh, Grand Hotel, Best Picture winner in 1932. And then uh, he did these films, and then I think uh, Of Human Bondage a few years later, The Razor's Edge, and Nightmare Alley, some of his bigger films in the 40s. But I don't know if he's come up uh, for us much. I mean, is there anything that stood out as far as what he was bringing to the table? Not, not really, but I don't think I know enough Goulding to notice a Goulding stamp. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, Nightmare Alley's gotten a bit of replay. Uh, Although I've never seen the original. Yeah. You've never seen the original? I, I was actually curious about that because I know you're a big fan of the remake. Yeah, um, right, right. I'm super curious about that. Um, but there there was nothing in here that, that felt like I was able to make sense of this beyond a competent 1939 film that I really enjoyed. What should, what should I be looking for in terms of a Goulding film? I, I think you're asking the wrong, uh, uh, a good question to the wrong person, because like you, uh, like I, I also have just not seen much of his work. And um, but looking at the lineup, like I think there are a lot of films that he's directed that I've heard really strong things about. So I'm certainly curious to explore him a little bit more to get a better sense of of what he's doing, because, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, he certainly had a handle on crafting an interesting uh, like taking the play and crafting an interesting film from it. Yeah. Also interested in to see a number of, of screenplay and screenwriter credits uh, for him where he didn't direct. And as, as such a, a director, 
I'm curious to see, you know, what does he what does he offer when he writes stuff that he doesn't direct? So, man, he's just all over the place, especially in terms of like tone too. It, well, and I think you know the writing side of it. I think that's because he started as a playwright before he even jumped into films. Yeah, you know, he worked as a playwright, and you know, when you're working as a playwright and director on stage, I think that probably gave him a sense of crafting a scene you know bringing it together in that way and i thought you know to that end i think he does a good job of just making an interesting story and certainly a filmmaker in that realm of uh this is definitely the period he started in the silent era and then moved into the sound era so already knew how to craft uh a competent images within the story without having to worry about the dialogue so i think that alone i think helps the just the film hold up really tightly yeah, I, I just um, I marvel at his filmography looking at starting with, you know, Florence Walton and Julian Lestrange in 1916 and his last film starring Pat Boone in Mardi Gras. Like that is a scope of talent that uh, of working with talent that is, uh, I, I think, rare air. Yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic film. I really enjoyed it. Me too. We'll be right back, but first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Yehez Raz, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. 
All right, Andy. So the movie came out long enough ago that surely it's been made remade a hundred thousand times. <laughs> well, it definitely was popular. And again, based on a play. So obviously there have been plenty of other performances of the play. Um, and this was definitely the era where radio was big. And so there were often radio adaptations after the films would do so well. In fact, the very next year, 1940, Betty Davis, along with Spencer Tracy, appeared in the radio adaptation of this. And uh, this is, you know, something that even before this movie had come out, Barbara Stanwyck, Melvin Douglas, they were already in a radio adaptation in 1938. So it was definitely one of those things that appeared on radio quite a bit. There was a remake of this in England, 1963, called Stolen Hours with Susan Hayward and Michael Craig. I looked around for this to see if I could track it down anywhere. It's really difficult to find, but I did actually see that somebody has posted it on YouTube. I was actually kind of curious uh, to check it out just to see and, uh, you know, see if it was, you know, if it held up as much as this one did, but I didn't have a chance. Mm. There was also, again, in the 50s with TV, a TV adaptation of the play that was made with Sylvia Sidney and Christopher Plummer in it along with, um, in the 70s, another TV movie version with Anthony Hopkins playing the Doctor. So hmm. it's been, yeah, a number of times this thing has has seen the light as a story because inevitably people find it a great opportunity for um, the lead actress to give a solid performance. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and that takes us to award season, since we're talking about awards movies, how to do. Again, these early ones, this will be an interesting season because we're going to see... As we go, you know, each series is a different decade. We're going to see the rise in awards categories and uh, the awards themselves, like different organizations having their own awards. This, 1939, there weren't many. This film had two wins with four other nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for three. Best Picture, Gone with the Wind, of course, won that. Betty Davis was nominated for Best Actress, but she lost to Vivian Lee in Gone with the Wind. And Max Steiner's uh, score was nominated, but lost to The Wizard of Oz. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Betty Davis was nominated again for Best Actress, but again lost to Vivian Lee. And at the National Board of Review, it's always, their system is always strange. I'm never exactly sure. The film received two places in their list of Best Actors. Uh, out of 11 total. And they all are considered winners. I, again, National Board of Review, I think they just pick. And if you're on the list, then you're considered a winner. Geraldine Fitzgerald was one of the two for this and Wuthering Heights. And Betty Davis was also for this and The Old Maid. Wow. I'm so curious. So curious to watch these other movies now that we've talked about this one. How to do at the box office? Did it make a bazillion dollars in today's dollars? I, you know, this is going to be a tricky series, uh, these early ones. But this one, I found some information, at least for this. Because you have your mafia books, your mafia ledgers that you sometimes go to. No, Eddie Mannix is in no way connected to this studio. And so, and and for the bulk of these, he wasn't connected with any of these. So, so unfortunately, the Mannix ledger is not involved in any of these. Yeah, which is why I could find next to nothing. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah, this one... Goulding had about a million dollars to work with, as I found in the old variety, I think. 
that is $21.2 million in today's dollars. This movie opened April 22nd, 1939, all by itself. Unfortunately, I could not find any information as to how it did, although they said it was popular. Uh, but with De- Davis in the role for which everybody still praised her and a film that was nominated for Best Picture, I imagine that it did okay. I imagine, indeed. You know, she had quite a career after this movie. <laughs> Just saying. Yes. Uh, well, I'm I'm thrilled we talked about it for that very reason. I love uh, throwing Betty Davis in here, and um, it's a, it was a great great find. I'm really glad to have watched it, and uh, you know, I just I enjoy these performances and and uh, just kind of exploring more of Betty Davis's career. Yeah, me too, for sure. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings, but first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, another Best Picture nominee from 1939, Leo McCary's Love Affair. Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn in Love Affair. Tied to each other heart and soul, yet they have no right to love. Few pictures can boast of such exciting love sequences, such sentimental scenes, such fire and fury of a boyer desperately in love, fighting the woman he loves fighting the world he hates to keep the one thing so vital to his happiness. All right, Andy, uh, Letterboxd, uh, what are you going to do for Dark Victory in your very own Letterboxd watch list? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's of its era. I found it to be very touching and compelling and a solid performance by Betty Davis at the core. Um, and it's a really solid story. I found it very touching. I think I'm going to land at four stars in a heart with this one. I think that um, overall, I feel pretty good with that. Andy, we're samesies. We're like letter twins. I am also four stars in a heart. <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie, and uh, even in, in spite of its, uh, you know, many of its dated uh, tropes, I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'll probably watch it again someday. Yeah, I, in the scope of films from 1939, I can see why this is, um, was earmarked as something that would get a Best Picture nomination. Absolutely. So what did you think about Dark Victory? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Oh, what are you going to do for Letterboxd for Dark Victory? If there is a thread that I'm finding, other than, you know, definitely people enjoy Betty Davis, and (laughs) there's a whole trend of people who think that this is a very gay film and that she should have ended up with Anne. (laughs) But the real trend that I find is the people who love the film and clearly uh, politically don't like Ronald Reagan because there's a lot of <laughs> anti-Ronald Reagan sentiment in them, uh, including my three-star from Cody Derricks, who simply had this to say, Ronald Reagan is the true cancer in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. I, I have Phoebe's three-and-a-half star, uh, which goes to your first point. Betty Davis's eyes and aggressively homoerotic friendships carried the movie industry for like two decades. I said what I said. Ha, 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 nice.
<laughs> oh, thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.